This is episode 3 of season 2 of The Meridian, and we're once again coming to you from Lund Observatory, Lund University, here in southern Sweden. It is March 18th when we release this episode. In this episode, we'll talk to Professor Nikolai Piskano, who's visiting us from Uppsala University, a bit up north. Well, middle of Sweden, but a bit up north. This season, we're also bringing you some field reporting from the Nordic Optical Telescope on La Palma when Nick and his team are trying to catch a transiting exoplanet. More about that later. The Meridian. Hey Rebecca. Hi Nick. How are you going? I'm going fine actually. Um, I actually thought we could talk about something that might be a bit of a tricky subject. Okay. So uh, a couple of months ago mm-hmm. I wrote a piece for the student magazine here, Lundagård, yep. about the International Day of Women and Girls in Science. Oh, okay. So it's an official UN day. 11th of February, and I sort of talked with all female researchers here at the university about their science and also how they sort of see their fields gendered-wise. And I also looked up sort of the numbers, uh, like how many women researchers there are. And in general, in the STEM field, so that's science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, Hmm. not medicine, um, (laughs) like 33% of scientists are women. Uh, But when you look at sort of the student level, so like master's and phd level it's more of a 50 50 ratio so i was like why is that yeah it's like some kind of drop off going on mm-hmm. and stuff yeah, yeah so like after yeah phd so like postdoc and below or above uh the the field sort of just becomes more man dominated yeah right um i guess like 33 percent is that a bad sign or a good sign what do you think about that i know when i read the number i was like well that's high yeah. <laughs> but I guess it can also be high since, yeah, it's clump all of these sort of uh, fields together, right? right? When you look at physics and chemistry, for instance, it's lower rate of female to men. But when you look at biology and environmental science, it's much higher. So I guess it sort of brings the number up because I, I was sort of, yeah, happily surprised. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right. Um, so, like, I guess uh, if I could ask you a question, mm. do you think 50-50 is what we should be aiming for? thing is if one assumes which i hope a lot of people assume that men and women are equally clever and capable yeah uh then most scientific fields should be 50 50 given that everyone has sort of the same interest but yeah i guess one can assume that too um and that we don't have 50 50 for me points at that we're sort of um, benefiting men more yeah because probably there are women that perhaps are more capable not sitting at those scientific positions yeah exactly well because also like when you start out when you finish a phd like yeah. both me and you are going to be almost in our 30s when we do that and then like yeah. <laughs> you know like we might want to be considering starting a family mm-hmm, then as well mm-hmm. and like Starting a family, usually the mother takes at least a year of maternity leave. Um, mm. It's different for different cultures across the world. But yeah. that's a lot of time in science to not be doing science. And, like, it's, you know, if you spend time away, you're not reading papers. And so the field gets ahead of you and then mm. your networks sort of deteriorate a little bit. So yeah. it can be quite a difficult challenge for... Um, yeah, exactly. If you're a parent to leave, like, how do you also keep on top of your field? Because the field is moving so fast forward, right? Yeah. 
no, I think that's super tricky. At least in Sweden, here we have that the sort of part of the parental leave is marked towards the the father and marked towards the mother, which is also a very heterosexual way of looking at it. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, but still so the mother tend to take more of the parental leave. And as you say, then you might lose some of the connection with your field. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything you would like to see, like as a um an aspiring woman researcher that you think would make things easier or uh I guess yeah, as I said, once again, this is sort of a very heterosexual way of looking at it. But yeah. you know, uh, actually sort of have men stepping up and taking more of that uh leave to, yeah. to actually raise your children. Uh, so that it doesn't lay too much on the the woman to do that, actually. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's so hard because it's like, yeah, as you say, you will lose up on the networking and the reading up on papers every day. And what can you really do about that? Yeah. Um, and I think, well, like in my, my opinion, I think it's good that we when we have like raising um, mm. raising young girls, especially going through high school mm. and that, to tell them that it is OK if they want to be career oriented like mm-hmm. they don't have to be, be a mother i think um well in the modern um era that pressure is probably somewhat less i still still think it exists mm. um and it's quite common for men researchers to take families with them all over the world while True. they do research positions and and so yeah i think um just bucking these trends takes time um mm-hmm. and it, it takes time by i think just reaffirming these uh ideas to girls so that they you know, it's um, okay to be a mother um, and to raise <laughs> children. There's nothing wrong with that as well. But um, it's o- it's okay to make the choice not to or to, mm-hmm. like, whatever makes you happy as a person. But, so you feel like perhaps women and girls are more pressured into becoming like a mother than a, a guy would be into becoming a father? Yeah, I think there are these still societal pressures um, mm. that a lot of um, young girls feel that we need to sort of work on. Um, mm. And I... Th- I think a good example is this when you have um, and a lot of people don't like uh, putting quotas in like a 50-50 quota. Um, no, yeah. And, you know, if that's um, not really here to discuss whether or not it's a good or a bad mm. idea. But I do remember one case where people stopped putting a 50-50 quota once it was reached mm-hmm. and then it sort of yeah. shifted back to more male dominated. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so the idea is that I think there are some these undercurrent kind of pressures that still exist, which take time to erode. Um, and I think, you know, we as people will benefit from them if we don't have these pressures <laughs> and people get to be the real person that they yeah, really I guess. want to be. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess like uh, what you actually can sort of see uh, scientifically is that in countries that tend to be have more well-educated girls is that the birth rate drops. Yeah. Because I guess, yeah, you make more well-educated choices in life perhaps. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, or maybe that you actually focus on your career instead. Um, but I think that's very interesting. Yeah. Um, and like yeah. a, a lower birth rate isn't necessarily a bad thing because we are like, you know, overpopulation <laughs> is a, a problem. And so, you know, if women are living more fulfilled lives and that leads them to having maybe less children or maybe making them making the active choice to have a child, which then mm. will be raised in an environment that is nurturing and happy. Like, I think that can only be, lead to good things. Um, mm-hmm. And then we have, you know, Earth has a finite amount of resources. And so <laughs> if we're, the population is starting to sure, shrink. Yeah, then, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that's true. Exactly. Okay, yeah. Thank you so much for wanting to talk about this with me. No, I'm glad we chatted about it. Thank you. And now 
I'd like to welcome to the mic Professor Nikolai Piskanov, visiting us from Uppsala Observatory. Nikolai, welcome. Thank you. So how do we get stuck into it? Could you tell me a little bit about yourself and your scientific interests? Uh, so uh, I'm professor of observational astronomy in Uppsala University. When I came to Uppsala some years ago, uh, I was mostly focused on uh, uh, magnetic activity on the solar type stars, mm-hmm. uh, similar to the cycles, uh, magnetic cycles on our sun. Uh, and I was developing special method that allows us to create maps of magnetic field over the surface of those stars. But gradually I moved uh, away towards the direction of uh, exoplanets. And so last uh, 10, 15 years, I was mostly focused on that. Right. Okay. Um, so how did you end up studying astronomy? Uh, <laughs> here's the funny story. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I uh, finished high school in Moscow, mm-hmm. uh, and then uh, since the school was for talented kids in math and physics, I thought I will continue in physics because physics was uh, somewhat closer to real life than uh, pure math. Mm-hmm. And so my goal was physics department in Moscow University. Uh, the day they were open for accepting papers for entrance exam, I woke up early in the morning to discover that President Ford is about to visit Moscow. Mm-hmm. Uh, turns out that uh, my house, which was on an island, was totally cut from the rest of the world because <laughs> it has uh, four bridges connecting it to the rest of Moscow and all four were closed <laughs> for any traffic or pedestrians. And so by the time I got to the university, there was a huge queue at the one of the entrances, like 300 people or something. And I thought, I was 16 years old, by the way. Mm-hmm. And I thought, hmm, no, I'm not standing in such a long queue. So I walked around the building and found another entrance, mm-hmm. which uh, also said, we take your papers for the entrance exam, but there was nobody there in the queue. So I went in and asked... Uh, what's the difference? And said, so, well, the other queue has two people per one position and we have 25. <laughs> so, okay. Wow. And what's so exciting about this entrance? Well, it's astronomy, they said. Okay, then I will do it. I said. <laughs> that's how I became astronomer. That's, that's such a, <laughs> that's a great story. Um, yeah. Um, so I guess... You um, have worked with implementation, um, both with software creation and telescopes as well. Um, and one of the things that I sort of find challenging when I'm using a telescope is that, like, it's not as simple as just pointing a telescope at your object that you want to use and then you get the data perfectly. Um, like, so what you in in a, in a form that you can actually do some science with. There's always a lot of middle ground. Um, what's the hardest thing about using telescopes, in your opinion? Um. Well, there are multiple things. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of them would be that I agree with you that uh, in perfect world, that's exactly what will happen. You come to a telescope and they say, I want observations of this target. And suddenly you get them in perfect shape to do science, right? And so somebody has to do a middle ground. Mm -hmm. And occasionally there is nobody else but you to do it. And so you feel that you have to do it. Uh, on the other hand, 
if you think of such an ideal world, then what happened to the poor students? Because they have no idea how this whole thing works. Yeah. And if something needs to be improved or fixed, or some future telescopes, future instrument needs to be built, who is going to do that? Because nobody knows how the old telescopes work. Yeah. And so I guess one has to have both types of instruments and telescopes. Some instruments and telescopes where students can get their hands dirty and understand everything down to the uh, smallest mechanical things to uh, to learn about the problems, to learn about difficulties, and to learn about maybe best practices, and also the perfect uh, big international infrastructure where everything works automatically by itself. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, so uh, a lot of us here in Lund actually use spectrographs for our own research. So we have a um, quite a keen uh, stellar spectroscopy group and exoplanet spectroscopy group. Um, so for the listeners out there, though, we don't we haven't really gone into what spectrographs actually do. Um, and so uh, considering that you're quite a prominent expert in the field, I was wondering if you could explain to us um, the concepts of them, um, if yeah, if you could. So uh, the usual attempt to explain what spectrographs and how spectrographs are doing whatever they are doing is to think of a prism or think of any uh, uh, optical device that spread the light uh, uh, in space or in direction depending on the wavelengths or frequency. And uh, you know, think of any uh, optical effects that you observe on a regular basis, rainbow for example. Mm -hmm. In case of rainbow, the element that uh, disperses uh, the light are little droplets of water. Uh, in other examples, it would be a prism. So uh, non-plane parallel, some triangular shape or pyramid shape uh, piece of glass mm -hmm. uh, that you look uh, through and then you suddenly see that objects that were black and white suddenly have colors. And that's again, this something that we call dispersion, spreading the light according to the wavelengths of frequency. Now, uh, spectrographs with which I work do not use usually prism, at least not for the main dispersion. We use other uh, optical elements which are called uh, dispersion gratings. I don't want or I don't have to go into the, the details of how it works, mm -hmm. but uh, the idea is the same. The light is reflecting from those gratings and now uh, light that was all frequency were mixed together, is now spread, and light of different wavelengths is going in different directions. Right. Um, and so, like, what can we learn from this spread light, like the rainbow? Um, it's there. Yeah. What's the possible? Uh, so, what we can do, we can measure uh, separately the intensity of light of different uh, wavelengths. Okay. And so, this way, we, for example, can uh, measure the temperature. Mm -hmm. Uh, this way, we can uh, measure the uh, uh, individual spectral lines, and spectral lines are usually associated with uh, particular uh, atoms or molecules. Uh, this is regularly used for uh, safety, for example, if you want, if you're working in the industry and uh, uh, there are potential dangerous gases in the 
environment where people are working, there would be usually safety devices that use spectroscopy to detect those gases, uh, all sorts of applications. But of course, in astronomy, we typically uh, use this to determine chemical composition of distant objects that we cannot go to and measure in place. Right. So um, is there any kind of science questions that you're really interested in answering that use spectrographs itself, like in this intrinsic property from the light coming from stars? So uh, the main problem I'm working on right now is to try to understand uh, the uh, chemical composition of atmospheres around planets in the different uh, in in other planetary systems or solar systems. Do you have a particular goal in mind? Like, would you like to look for a habitable planet or ultra hot Jupiter's that take your fancy? What um, what's your what's your goal? I guess. Well, it's. Uh, uh, one shouldn't really impose a goal on the okay. nature because the nature yeah. uh, does what it does. And so whatever, it doesn't care about what I want and what <laughs> I would like. So I think I will take more modest approach here and I would like to know how it is on the other planet. Is there atmosphere? Do they have atmospheres? Is their atmosphere is uh, similar to what we have on Earth, or maybe atmosphere to of Venus or Mars, or maybe they have these huge gaseous envelope like Jupiter and Saturn have? Right. Okay. Um, so, what type of atmospheres are we able to observe currently? So. Currently, we are reliably detecting and even studying chemical composition of atmosphere of gas giants, similar to Jupiter. Mm, okay. And uh, frequently, uh, uh, we can study them extremely well in case they are very close to their parent star. Yep. Okay. Um, so what's the chance that we might be able to observe the atmosphere of a planet or orbiting around an Earth-like star at what a distance the Earth would be. Um, yeah, are we have, can we do that right now? No. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, the answer is, is simply no for two reasons. Uh, first of all, we don't know of any uh, precise analog to the solar system with Earth at one astronomical unit from a, a solar-type star. Uh, the other reason is that to observe the atmosphere and detect the atmosphere, uh, we most likely have to observe this system when the planet is positioned in front or on the line between the observer and the star. Yeah. And that is not very frequent. So instead, we are looking for systems where the orbital period is much shorter. And that will happen if the star is much smaller and less massive. So we often look for uh, Earth-like planets orbiting M dwarf stars, which are much smaller and less massive than the Sun. Right. Okay. Um, well, just to wrap up, do you have any funny stories from your career that you'd like to share? Uh, I'm sure I have plenty. And, <laughs> uh, uh, some of them are funnier than the others, maybe. Uh, one thing that I uh, recall... Uh, early today when I was giving a seminar, mm -hmm. there was uh, a, a picture of me, uh, which was a kind of standard placeholder for a Zoom session. <laughs> uh, 
this picture has uh, an interesting story. It was taken in Santiago de Chile before my departure to Paris, three hours before departure uh, to Paris in January 2010. And uh, about five hours later, when we were two hours in, into the flight, the captain told us that there was a huge earthquake in Santiago and the whole airport was destroyed. I don't know if it's a funny story, but yeah, sure. I haven't yeah. seen this picture for a while. And so yeah. that uh, was interesting uh, memory. Okay. Did you get back home soon or? No, no, we were already flying. Oh, we you're already off. flying. We oh, wow. Off. Okay. Yeah. The, the pilot said this uh, two hours into the flight. That, <laughs> uh, and by the way, there was an earthquake in, in Santiago. And uh, the main thing that was hit was the airport. Right. Wow. Well, that was a, that was a great story. Um, thank you so much for coming on and coming to visit us here at Lund. Um, and uh, yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Yes. There may be a myth out there portraying astronomers as bearded men in lab coats who stay up all night, every night, all alone, with their eye glued to the telescope, just counting stars, or waiting for one to explode, or hoping to see aliens fly by. In this podcast, we have tried to debunk this myth a bit by giving you a glimpse into our lives and the work here at Lund Observatory. First of all, we hope you realize that astronomers are just normal people, and that we come in all shapes and sizes and from all corners of the world. Astronomers collaborate on huge international projects, and when there's a new discovery in our field, it's often difficult to assign credit to one single person. Big breakthroughs are team efforts. If you're a loyal listener to the podcast, you may have already realized what an international field this is. And we've been hearing field reports from Nick and Bibi in La Palma. Nick is there together with his team members from Switzerland, Denmark, Sweden, and Netherlands, and of course him being Australian chasing exoplanets using the Nordic Optical Telescope on the Spanish mountaintop. But then he met another Australian astronomer, Belinda Nicholson. Belinda is a postdoctoral researcher assistant working at the University of Oxford Astrophysics Department, where she studies both exoplanet and stellar astrophysics. Nick, of course, got a bit overexcited and demanded that she join the podcast, which he was happy to do. Let's listen in. Hey, Belinda. Hi. Thanks for coming on to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I just I sort of saw you hanging around and, you know, you're an Australian like me, so I got really yeah, excited. Yeah, Aussies. Aussies, exactly. So it's nice. So, yeah. Um, yeah, so I just thought it would be really great to see, you know, how, see your perspective on astronomy as well. So how about you start off by telling us a bit about yourself? How did you end up in Oxford? And, yeah, if you could give us the whole story. Sure. So I grew up in Melbourne. Yep. Uh, in Australia. Mm -hmm. I did my undergrad and master's at University of Melbourne. Okay. Uh, I started off my astronomy journey, uh, I would say it sort of starts at, uh, well, it starts from like year 10. Mm -hmm. That was when I decided, right, I'm, you know, you're deciding your careers at that stage in high school. And I got it into my head that I wanted to do a PhD in astrophysics. Nice. Now, I... Why? I don't know. It sounded cool. Uh, but also, I really liked space. I really liked stars. And I just found space really fascinating. Yeah. 
So I knew, and also I really liked physics. I really liked understanding how things worked mm. and the sort of fundamental nature of things. So that sort of put me on the path of going, okay, well, I know at least I want to do a Bachelor of Science with, you know, majors in physics. But when I, I really sort of started to take the astronomy side seriously was I got a studentship to the Gemini South uh, Observatory, okay. to, to, that, to that telescope, uh, between my undergrad and my master's. Mm -hmm. And I abs had an absolute ball. I loved it. It was my first time overseas. So yeah. I was in Chile. I was in the, the town of La Serena. Okay, yeah. And uh, it was my first time in a country where I didn't speak the language. And it was, it was just such a thrilling experience from that side. But also being embedded in astronomy and seeing the workings of an observatory and the astronomers going about their, their day and the research that happens and the discussion of science, it was just so thrilling and exciting. Here we were discussing the mysteries of the universe over coffee. Yeah. It, it, was, it was just great. So I'd firmly decided that for my master's project, I wanted to do something astronomy related. I ended up doing elliptical galaxies. Oh, okay. So not quite onto the path of stars and exoplanets yet. Mm -hmm. But I, I would get there eventually. So I did my master's and that was fun. And then I saw advertised this, this project on uh, understanding stellar winds. Right. Okay. So our sun has a wind. Mm -hmm. It's the solar wind. It's, you know, it, it causes the aurora. It causes all sorts of fun shenanigans for our GPS satellites. Mm -hmm. Um, it has implications for planetary habitability and how uh, the atmospheres of our planets have evolved. And so this was a really fascinating topic. It was different from what I'd done before and it, it, it got me hooked. It got me excited about studying these stars. Yep. So I moved up to Queensland. I mm -hmm. moved to the University of Southern Queensland yep. and uh, spent the next few years working there. So I started in stellar wind modeling. Turned out modeling wasn't really my thing. Right. I liked observatories and yes. I liked data. Yeah, I can relate to that. Uh, and spending my time doing computer simulations was was really not my my jam. Yeah. So about 18 months in, I switched projects, okay. which is, you know, it, lots of people do it. Yep. Um, it should be more normalized that yes. we that you can change your mind if, if one thing isn't isn't really isn't really what you like to do. Yeah. So I then went and did what's called Zeeman Doppler imaging. So okay. this is a technique where we use high-resolution spectra yep. and we take polarization, circular polarization information in that spectra as well. Okay. So you put a, a, a quarter wave plate, a something that filters circular polarization mm -hmm. before you put your spectra into the spectrograph. Wow, okay. And so you, with the circular polarization information in your spectra, you can tell something about the magnetic fields mm -hmm. of... A star. So this is where I, I sort of switched from looking at the winds of stars to looking at their global magnetic fields. And this got me hooked on understanding, okay, how do stars work? Mm -hmm. How does the magnetic fields of stars work? And then I switched sort of sideways again mm -hmm. because uh, stellar activity, stellar magnetic fields, have a really important role uh, or, or, or a very frustrating role <laughs> when it comes to detecting exoplanets. Yep because they can mimic exoplanet signals. They can also disguise exoplanet signals. Mm. So this that's sort of also now what sort of got me onto, onto studying exoplanets. Yep. And so I got to the end of my PhD and I saw this postdoc advertised at the University of Oxford mm -hmm. to work with uh, Suzanne Agron, okay. who is a, a world expert in 
uh, understanding the impact of stellar activity mm. on the data that we that we get. So either light curves, mm-hmm. so from photometry or, or radial velocities. Yeah. And so this was a perfect opportunity for me to now make another switch yeah. <laughs> uh, into studying the realm of exoplanets, but very much with a stellar focus. So that's my journey. That's that's my journey from from being like, oh, astrophysics is cool, to yep. now I'm at Oxford, and then now I'm up on a mountain in La Palma. Yeah. Okay. It's a <laughs> <laughs> that's a really interesting journey. I guess you sort of like mixed and matched and sort of found your way to. Um, uh, your interest. What would you say is more interesting if you had to pick exoplanets or stars, or do you, are you firmly married to both? So, I think uh, the big thing that I've learnt is that exoplanet science is stellar science. Yep. Is that while we're going out and detecting exoplanets, actually we're doing stellar astrophysics all along. Okay. Because yeah. we're entirely reliant on understanding stellar signals. So while, you know, my goal is to detect exoplanets and that's cool and measuring their masses is fun, actually I'm, I, I would consider myself as much a, a stellar astronomer as an exoplanet astronomer. Yeah, okay. Because it's interesting because in my research field I look at the atmospheres of exoplanets and basically what we do is we take a spectrum of the star and then we completely remove it and so like try to find out what's left over and, you know, these instruments are world-class instruments. You feel a bit guilty when you just remove a signal about that kind of stuff. So, yeah, so it is, um, I, I completely agree with you um, uh, that there is a, a very intimate link between the two. Um, and Rebecca, who's my co-host um, back in Sweden, um, she's interested in seeing what the, um, the relationship between the chemical abundances between planets and stars are. So, like, if you can sort of t- make you look at a star, can you guess what kind of planet would be orbiting around those kinds of things? So, yeah, I, I think... Um, you can't separate the two, but obviously it, it does. Uh, it stops you from. It's, you can't stop camps from forming up. I guess too, as well. Which yes, is a, yeah. this is true. This is true. Yeah. Though, though, I feel like slowly the camps are coming together as some of the sort of more strict exoplanet people are realizing that hey, we need to understand stars better if we're yeah. to be able to push to smaller exoplanet signals yes. and also understand planets around slightly more active stars. Yeah. Also, uh, speaking of small planet signals. Um, one of the challenges of astronomy at the moment is that we are really biased towards either really big close-in planets or we have to look at really small stars with small planets orbiting around them, still very close to the star itself. Mm-hmm. Um, we sort of... It's, why is it so hard that we can't find planets um, so uh, further out from us? So, like, these these planets orbiting around, like, every few days, they have a... Their years are on an order of days rather than, like, on, like, Earth, which orbits around the sun every year. So, like, why, why is it so hard to detect these kinds of types of planets? So, two things. Yep. Firstly, time. Yep. Time is against us. Mm-hmm. We just have to wait to see these signals. And often you need... Really, if you want to be able to validate that it's a real planetary signal, you need to see at least three orbits. Okay. You might be able to get away with two, but you need to see it at repeat at least once. So, if you've got something that's on a 100-day orbit, you have to wait at least 200 days. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's most of your year gone. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, you might want to wait another another few hundred days to, 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 to really verify it. Um you also have the problem that then that star isn't necessarily observable all year round. Yep. It'll only be observable for several months in the year. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it might take several years to be able to uh, determine a, a 100-day orbit mm-hmm. of, of something. Now, 
that's sort of a bit extreme. If we want to go a little bit closer in, like the 20-day orbit, even then that can be extremely challenging. Yeah. Um, because, again, you're still going to be waiting several months. Uh, it might take more, still might take more than one season, depending on the observability of the star. And so, yeah, it's just it just takes time. Yeah, and right. then the other problem is that the further away the planet is from the host star, if you're detecting it in radial velocities, mm-hmm. um, the amplitude of that signal is going to decrease. So you might have something that's like a Neptune size, but if it's further out, it's still going to have a tiny planet signal. Yeah. So you're then also competing against uh, the activity of the star to try and see that signal. And the other sort of tricky thing that we're now encountering is that so the way that we disentangle activity from planets can one technique we use is to look at the periodicity Mm -hmm. so the time scales that the activity is going to be working on is different from the time scales of the planet yeah uh if you have something that's on the 20 to 30 day orbit the activity signals are also working on a 20 to 30 days okay for, for some of these stars now that'll differ Depending on the type of star you're looking at, some stars have shorter sort of activity or rotation period, uh, uh, you know, activity modulated signals, Mm -hmm. Uh, but some are longer. So you really have to sort of look at, um, you have to be a lot more careful. You have to employ your activity mitigation techniques uh, a lot more carefully. And so this this is where we're at at the moment is trying to understand um, activity on these longer time scales and how best do we quantify that? How best do we remove that? And yeah, there's a lot in terms of the way that you observe it uh, and the techniques that you employ. So it's it's complicated, but but we're getting there. I think the the message at the end of the day, though, is that we're we're making progress in this area and we're we're actually getting there. We're we're finding these planets and we're and we're characterizing them. Yeah, like uh, um, it was kind of funny because um, my. Flight to La Palma got cancelled, so we had to take the ferry. I'll sort of I'll pull how this actually relates to astronomy, but um, uh, my supervisor was sort of calculating how fast the ferry was going at meters per second, and so like we we're seeing this um, ferry come towards us, and it's not moving very fast at all. And then he's like, "Yeah, that would be roughly about how much." the star actually moves and the detection of the movement of the star that we can then use to infer that an exoplanet actually exists. Mm-hmm. And like to think about it, like is slowly moving hunk of metal is where at the point where we can actually precisely measure these movements of stars and activity. And while it is super hard, it's still amazing how far we've come to be able to do these kinds of things. So I guess, um, We've become really good, and we, obviously we still need to become a lot better. But um, I guess sometimes it is nice to sort of take a little, uh, take a quick step back and stuff. Um, but uh, you must be very excited for James Webb, which is going to launch. Is, yes. Yes. Well, exi- excited, nervous, terrified. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. It's we're all we're all holding our breath. Yes. Although not too much, because otherwise we'd die. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, we've we've been holding our breath for the last best part of you know the last decade and a bit. But anyway, now it actually looks like it's going to actually launch this time. Yes. So, so uh, yes, it's very exciting. Yeah. Very exciting. Um, and that kind of has one way of mitigating um, the time constraint is that obviously when we're observing on the ground, we have to wait till night to come up, um, before we can actually look at our stars. With a space telescope, it's night all the time. Mm-hmm. if you want to think about it. Exactly. Um, so a lot of people like Elon Musk saying the future is in space telescopes. Um, do you really agree with that um, perspective or do you think there is a future for ground-based telescopes as well? I think there's 
there's always going to be a need for both. Yep. Uh, space is more expensive than on the ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the ground, we can continue to uh, develop and upgrade any instrument that we build, but in space, once it's up there, it's mm-hmm. very challenging to upgrade it. I mean, yep. there are examples like Hubble where we were able to go back and replace bits that needed replacing. Yep. But that's, you know, for things like James Webb, that's not always going to be possible because, you know, it's going to be out on an orbit where we're not going to be able to touch it once it's there. Yeah. So uh, there is always going to be a need for ground-based observing Mm -hmm. because that's where the development of a lot of new technology is going to happen. Uh, And that's where, I mean, particularly with with the next generation, like the 30 metre class, up to 40 metres nearly. Yes, yeah. uh, For for the ELT, uh, you know, they're they're going to offer types of instrumentation that you're not going to be able to put on a spacecraft, or at least we're not going to be able to put on a spacecraft yet. Yeah. So, uh, you know, spacecraft have done amazingly for photometry, so yeah. that's just precisely measuring the light of a star and the changes of the light in a st- of a star. Uh, but they haven't been able to do high-resolution spectroscopy. And that is what you need for radial velocities. You need very high-resolution, very stable, precise uh, spectra. We're able to do this on the ground because we can very easily control a lot of the... Well, we try our best to control a lot of the environment around the instrument and keep it super stable. Uh, We're able to build these things that take up a room or or take up most of a room Mm. uh, at the moment. That's the amount of instrumentation that's needed um, to be able to to do these sorts of measurements. Now, to try and put that onto a spacecraft uh, is... it is very challenging. Uh, you know, the, yep. the type of precision that you need in the optics, you'd need that to be able to survive a launch. Yep. Uh, launches are not kind. Mm-hmm. They're very bumpy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yes, it would it would be extremely challenging to be able to put a spectrograph in space at, at a high-resolution spectrograph one. Yeah. I, so um, you said you also uh, you have... Uh, you want to get a, understand a star more to be able to maybe differentiate between planetary signals. Um, so what is your end goal? Um, for, or maybe if you were to look into the future um, 10 years from now, what would, yeah, what would Belinda be able to do that would make it much easier to see an exoplanet? It's, it's interesting you say 10 years from now yep. because I'm involved in a project called the Terra Hunting Experiment. Okay. Uh, and the goal is mm-hmm. that it's going to look at 20 to 30 stars over the next 10 years Okay. to hunt for an Earth-like planetary signal. So oh. an Earth-sized planet on an Earth-like orbit around a sun-like star. Okay. That is the goal of this project. And so in 10 years' time, I'd really like future Belinda to, to, to still be doing that and to be involved in, uh, in, in making that discovery. And Mm -hmm. I, and you know, it's entirely possible with the instrumentation and with the technology that we have today to be able to do this. It just takes time and it takes also an important, uh, it takes also a careful understanding of, uh, stellar activity because our, our sun is, is not a well-behaved star. So mm-hmm. if we're trying to look for these types of planets around sun-like stars, we need to understand and understand our sun really well too. So I'm hoping in 10 years' time we have a much better understanding of our sun, mm-hmm. that we're able to really understand the way that our sun behaves on, on those timescales uh, and to have techniques, to have tools to be able to to remove those, those stellar signals 
or or to to study them to actually even find out more about other stars by by analyzing these signals okay cool all right, so for a bit of fun, say mm-hmm. when this project is successful and you find the next Earth around a star, mm-hmm. um, I, say if I was to give you a, a year's worth of time on any instrument that you want, it could be a space or it could be a ground, what would you use to study that planet and what would you try to show the world? Oh, so there's a planet that I'm trying to chase up at the moment mm-hmm. and it's proving difficult. Because it's on this, you know, 20 to 25 day orbit Mm -hmm. and it's a really small signal. And we've had two seasons of observations of it Mm -hmm. and we're nearly there. (laughs) We have, we certainly keep putting upper limits on it, but Mm -hmm. we don't have uh, a solid detection of it just yet. Okay. Uh, So, but it's a really exciting planet because it's in a, they're both transit. Mm -hmm. So we know that it's there because we've seen a transit. Uh, it's a two-planet system okay. that we know of. There might be more planets in the system, and that would be interesting to find too. So, you know, to be able to stare at the system for longer to find additional planets would be really exciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's exciting in terms of it's sitting in this strange area of parameter space. Right. So it's larger than Neptune but smaller than Saturn. Uh-huh. And there aren't many planets that are larger than Neptune or smaller than Saturn. What tends to happen in planet formation is that you become large enough such that you gather heaps of gas or you become not not as large and you, uh, you, you know, there's, there's sort of this, this physical boundary that happens. And you see that in, um, in the parameter space. You just, we've seen, we found a lot of Saturn-sized things. We've found a lot of Neptune-sized things, but we haven't found very many things in the middle. And, you know, we think that there's a real sort of physical uh, meaning behind this but this particular planet it sits in this space where it's it it, it shouldn't exist or it, you know it's one of these planets that is a very very rare and so i want to be able to measure the mass of this planet because yep. i want to understand what its density is okay i want to understand if it's if it's just sort of a very dense thing um that it's got a bit of gas or it's actually just a lot of gas that for some reason it didn't gather more or for some reason it didn't get blown away and so you end up at sort of more Neptune-sized thing. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of sort of questions around this, but also it's a really exciting one for... It's also a really exciting one for looking at James Webb, looking at with James Webb, because uh, it transits, it's a bright star, so this is going to be a perfect candidate for looking at what will be a fascinating atmosphere. But before we can do any atmospherics, we need to know the mass. Yes. <laughs> we really need to know the mass. So if I was given unlimited time on a telescope and the seasons were right, then I would just, I, I would stare at that planet and I would get a mass measurement. That, that sounds awesome because then I, I'd want to follow up and see if it had an atmosphere. So um, that, that's so cool. Actually, I, I'm really glad that you, you shared that with me. Um, but uh, we both have to run to actually prepare for our observing runs now. Yes, we do. Um, so I will let you go. But I am so thankful that you gave the time to talk to me, Belinda. Um, yeah, and I, I really hope we bump into each other in the future sometime. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. This was the third episode of the second season of Meridian. It was hosted by me, Rebecca Forsberg, and Nicolas Posado, and our producer was Anna Anadottir. Our guest today was Nikolai Piskanov. And our second guest was Belinda Nicholson, who I met on La Palma. 
If you have any comments or questions about the show, then feel free to reach out to us via our emails or via the Lund Observer account on Twitter. In our theme at the beginning of the show, we could hear members of a research school that Astronomisk Ungdom held here at Lund Observatory last summer. Make sure to tune into next week's episode when we will have Dainis Dravins crossing our meridian talking about his research. Thank you for listening. <laughs>